Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Tonight, we are speaking with Allison of Ask a Manager. Uh, I'm Marcy. I'm Jenny. And with us is... I'm Allison Green from Ask a Manager. Thank you so much for doing this with us tonight. We're so excited. Yeah, I'm excited to do it. If you haven't checked it out, Ask the Manager is the best blog there is. It's amazing. I don't even work in an office and haven't for years, but I read this blog obsessively. And now there's a podcast and a book coming out, and it's amazing. We are going to ask Allison the types of questions that she would normally be asked, but having to do with A Wrinkle in Time, since we love A Wrinkle in Time, and we're going to do multiple episodes about it. Allison, how did you get into giving people advice in about business settings and business questions? Yeah, I was working as the chief of staff for a nonprofit lobbying organization here in D.C. And this was back in, gosh, it's been 11 years almost at this point. And I kept seeing people make decisions for themselves or take actions at work that weren't getting them the outcomes that they wanted. And a lot of the time I thought it was because they didn't have the right insight into what their manager would be thinking. And so I thought there was space to create an advice column that would be from the perspective of your boss. And honestly, I thought no one would read it. I thought I would do it for a few months, get it out of my system, and that would be that. But it turned out, I think there's a real hunger out there for a place where people can go to ask very nuanced work questions. You know, there's a lot of places where you can go to find out how do I ask for a raise or what do I say in a second job interview? But there's not many places where you can go for more more complicated, more personalized things. Um, you know, someone is leaving toenail clippings in my desk or... Oh, God. Or stealing <laughs> your lunch and prosecuting you. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know... I'm allergic to my boss's perfume or or those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so that has become sort of the bread and butter of the website. That's that's great. I actually I never have had toenail clippings on my desk, <laughs> but I've had coworkers who clip their fingernails in the library. <sighs> like in yeah. shared workspaces. This is a thing I've gotten people complaining <laughs> about that. Not about me. Um yeah. <laughs> complaining about that. Yeah. It's people, you know, I think at work you're thrown into constant, very close contact with people who you wouldn't necessarily choose to spend 40 hours a week with on your own. Mm -hmm. And they have different norms and they have habits that you might not choose to put in your, the circle of people you're hanging out with. And so you get these very interesting clashes between people, which is what keeps me in constant letters. Well, and now I may have started small, but it's just wildly popular. Is that strange for you? It is strange for me. (laughs) I'm definitely not a perfect manager or a perfect coworker. I'm sure I have plenty of past colleagues who would attest to that. Um, So it's a strange position to be in. I think what I have done is I've made lots and lots of mistakes um, and then thought obsessively about how to avoid them in the future. And I think I have, and I share this with my readers, I think, I have a love of overthinking the sort of minutia of how we relate to each other. And I think for people who are really interested in that too, that's part of the appeal of the blog. I would definitely agree. I mean, you know, that's 
well, going back to what you, you were saying about how you're thrown into a work environment with people you didn't choose, and then you're spending a good part of your life with that group of people. Um, yeah, the, the things that arise and, and, you know, having this resource that you've created, you know, this extensive archive of letters, that's gotta be, I mean, that is so helpful to, to navigate these things. Well, and it's yeah. nice to know that you're not alone either. Sometimes when I read those letters, I'm like, I have anxiety and I thought I was the only one that worried about this weird interaction between like me and somebody else that I probably remember for years longer than they did. But it's nice to hear that other people are anxious about that too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's a real benefit of it. And I think too, sometimes you read there about such crazy workplaces or such terrible bosses that it can make you feel pretty good about what you have. Yeah. Well, Definitely. some just make you feel good anyway. The one about the girl, go get, go get your dog. Yeah. Oh, warms your heart. Jenny, mm. if you haven't heard that one, it's amazing. This girl was worried because her workplace offered to completely finance a service dog for her that she needed, and she didn't know if she should accept or not. Oh. And it was just like this outpouring of support from like the whole internet, and everybody was like, go get your dog. Oh, that's so sweet. It was so sweet. That was one of my favorites of all time. And I actually, you know, to be perfectly perfectly honest, I didn't know about your blog until Marcy told me about it. And um, so I started reading and I was struck at how much, how the, um, I guess how much you take seriously very small questions that normally you wouldn't have any resources to answer. Like, what do you do if your coworker smells? What do you do if you're allergic to your boss's perfume? Like, you know, what are those things? There's not a lot of guides out there for that. You could type it into the internet and you'll probably get like a Google answers that's poorly spelled and just like about leaving deodorant somewhere for them to find. But like <laughs> nothing yeah. actually appropriate. Yeah, nothing appropriate for a professional setting and nothing that's actually um, going to foster maybe goodwill. <laughs> so yeah, that advice about leaving deodorant for them to find anonymously is actually a really common answer to that. If you, mm -hmm. if you Google that question, people really want to give that advice and it's pretty mean. Mm -hmm. um, I actually had a letter once from the other side of that, from someone who um, had come into work one day and someone had left breath mints on her desk mm -hmm. and she was mortified. She thought someone was sending her the message that she had bad breath. And I think if I'm remembering right, she had been on a medication that was giving her dry mouth. And so she thought it was feasible that she did have terrible breath. And she just was very embarrassed that someone had chosen to handle it with her that way. And she actually sent in an update later on. It turned out the breath mints were Tic Tacs and someone was just leaving them for everyone like candy <laughs> to do. But I thought that was such a good illustration of how that advice to just anonymously leave someone a product to help with body odor someone <laughs> feel terrible that makes me feel good about my choices like in the past when I've like left stuff for everybody or like I've left stuff in the break room like I email everyone so there's a context <laughs> and I always yeah. worry that I'm overthinking but at the same time I want them to know what the ingredients are and the purpose behind it so I feel like that's it I feel like I'm on the side the right side right <laughs> I think you are. If writing Ask a Manager has taught me anything, it's that there are a lot of overthinkers out there, including me, and and giving people context and being really transparent about where you're coming from is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And warranted. <laughs>
do you have a favorite Newberry book? Um, I'm absolutely in love with the 21 balloons, which mm-hmm. now I'm trying to remember if it is a Newberry winner, but it I think is. it is, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, early I, ones. It's Maynard de Jong, right? Um, no, William, uh, oh, yeah. Dubois. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Minor de Jong won a lot of them in that era. <laughs> so I, you know, but yes, the 21 balloons is, is really cool. Yeah. I loved it as a kid and I sometimes reread it as an adult and it, I'm just enchanted by it. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I know that you give the book recommendations every weekend, but we weren't sure if you liked kids books. So that's really exciting for us. <laughs> oh, I love kids books. I have several shelves in my book area. Of, um, I have an etiquette section. I have a kid section and those are like my two genres that are, that are set, set out from everything else. <laughs> so what are some of your other favorite children's books? Oh gosh. Edward Eager, anything by Edward Eager. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and E. Nesbitt. I mean, they sort of go hand. Oh yeah. Um, the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle books. Mm-hmm. I don't know if kids read those these days. I don't think they do. I know that they've put them out with new covers several times over the years. And I think that it's been a few years since they've repackaged them uh, with like new illustrations and a new cover. But I think, you know, I think they do make the rounds. They're just not like super hot right now, but they yeah. do make the rounds. They're still on the shelves in libraries. I still see them. Like in Little Shop of Stories where Marcy works. Yeah, I'm a bookseller at a children's bookstore. We um, we don't sell a ton of those, but 21 Balloons we still sell. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle books are kind of like off message for what we want to tell kids these days. Because they're pretty <laughs> like rough and tumble. That does happen a lot with the older books. Sometimes you read and you get to a page and you're like, oh, I don't know. Well, but I think for me, um, what I always saw when I was a public librarian and I was giving books to kids all the time is that a lot of times kids would make it to the Mary Poppins books and they would make it through and then they'd want something else. And so Mrs. Piggle Wiggle was definitely kind of in that same vein. Um, And so I don't remember it being rough and tumble, though. It's been a while since I read those. Do they, they like wrestle treat- pigs and stuff? <laughs> no. <laughs> they didn't treat kids delicately. Oh, which yeah, I, yeah. I liked about them, and I suspect kids mm-hmm. would still like about them. Um, but, I mean, so the concept with them is that she's curing various forms of bad behavior with, with neighborhood kids, and she does them by um, – like there's one where the cure that she gives is that the kids aren't allowed to sleep for weeks until they tire themselves out. <laughs> like maybe would be considered. I remember that now that you're saying it. But yeah, you know, it's it's, it's like hyperbolic though. Like yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, <laughs> I think kids get the humor in that. Yeah, definitely. Without further ado, we will get on to our uh, task at hand, which is talking about A Wrinkle in Time, which is one of my favorite books. So Marcy um, put together these questions, and I think they're absolutely brilliant. They're from the point of view of different characters in Wrinkle of Time, asking questions um, to have for like career advice, (laughs) (laughs) which I hope is not too ridiculous. I'm excited for it. Oh, and I guess before we do that, we should um, also say that we are having a cocktail with this episode um, in honor of A Wrinkle in Time. We went with a dark and stormy because the very first line of A Wrinkle in Time, which is one of the best first lines ever, was it was a dark and stormy night. Mm-hmm. So we are enjoying those so far. 
And um, yeah, on to the questions. Dear Allison, I work for the U.S. Postal Service in a small town in New England where everybody's way too into everybody's business. I have a coworker who keeps making snide remarks to the customers about their mail. For instance, there's a local family that's the subject of much gossip because the father's been away for so long on a business trip that people are speculating that he left his family. My coworker makes cruel remarks about the lack of mail from the father any chance she gets, even to their teenage daughter. She's not opening their mail, so she's not breaking any laws that I know of, but she's using her knowledge of the mail they've received just to be petty, and it makes me very uncomfortable. How can I get her to stop? That is a perfect Ask a Manager letter. It sounds like <laughs> I would receive. So my advice is if you have the kind of rapport with your coworker where you can say something directly, I would start there. You know, say something like, Hey, I don't think <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to be crossing those boundaries with patrons and, and making remarks like that. It's too personal. Um, but I suspect the type of person who's doing something so mean spirited isn't going to be responsive to that. So I think you're pretty quickly after that going to need to talk to your manager who or her manager. Maybe they're the same person. Um, but I would just say, hey, I want to give you a heads up that here's what I've seen happening. And I think it's really inappropriate. And I've tried saying something to her myself. It's continued. And I was hoping you could intervene. That's great advice. Mm -hmm. I really wish that somebody would have done that for poor Meg. <laughs> <laughs> um, so our next one, <clears throat> sorry, is Dear Allison, I have a question about unpredictable work expenses. I'm a communications specialist in a three-person team that travels to various locations for specific projects. We have a system in place to document work expenses on location. Recently, however, it just so happened that a client was in my hometown, which never happens. And since it would be helpful for the project I'm working on with them, I volunteered to take them on a tour of a job site. I incurred some expenses for necessary safety equipment, a specialized breathing apparatus required for this site, that sort of thing. But since we're not at the usual project location, I wouldn't be able to submit it for reimbursement in the usual way. I'm not sure who's responsible. Since I volunteered for their extra duty and I really was happy to do it, I love these clients. It is, just a, is it just a sunk cost for me? Or should I ask to be reimbursed even though it's a hassle? You should ask to be, in re you should ask to be reimbursed. It's an expense that you're incurring in the course of, of doing your job. So even though you volunteered for it, and even though it's not the usual type of expense, it's still a work expense. It's an expense that you wouldn't have if you weren't doing that job. So it's reasonable to expect to have it paid back. Okay. Thank you. From Miss Who, who's it, or Miss What's It? <laughs> Forget not sure which, which one. one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. It's hard not to laugh when I'm reading this because I know what they're about. <laughs> Let's see. Dear Allison, I work in the central office of the local government. I understood when I took this job that it would <clears throat> that it would require some pretty rigid policies and very long hours. But I feel like they're asking too much of me. My boss wants to control everything. He's been fairly accommodating when I make requests. For instance, they ordered me a special chair when I needed it because I was having back pain and really great vision insurance because I have an issue with my eyes. But at the same time, I feel like these accommodations wouldn't be necessary if I didn't work such ridiculously long hours. I feel like I never leave. My boss is so cerebral and focused on his work that I don't think he even notices, but I hesitate to bring it to his attention. He can be really harsh. But I've noticed recently that my attitude toward customers that, that my attitude toward customers is really suffering because of it. What should I do? They're really the only employers in my town, so looking for a new job isn't really an option. 
Well, this is a hard one because I know the backstory <laughs> and I know that your employer is insane. And <laughs> if I didn't know that backstory, I would say have a candid conversation with your boss and lay out what you laid out here. Um, knowing that your boss is it, uh, I don't have a lot of hope for, <laughs> for a good resolution. Indentured servitude forever. <laughs> Yeah, I think that guy would be out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, our one last more. one. Dear Allison, I'm in a horrible situation. Could use your advice. I don't usually. Ugh. I don't usually travel much for work, or well, I guess I do, but it's usually longer term, so that I stay in one place for several years while I work with a team, and my family comes with me. This time, though, I was chosen for a one-person business trip that, in hindsight, was very poorly planned. It's a long story, but thanks to the bad planning and an ill-defined scope of work, I'm essentially stunk, not stunk, <laughs> I'm essentially stuck in a foreign country without the necessary paperwork to get anything done. The client is extremely hostile and won't help me at all. I'm just feeling trapped here. I don't even have a way to communicate with my team, which is the main cause for my concern. With no word from me, how long is my employer obligated to keep paying me and providing insurance coverage? My wife's at home with our four children trying to deal with the situation. I'm very worried. Since this is a business trip and I'm still doing my best to get the job done, despite all these obstacles, I feel confident that once I get home, even if my benefits have been suspended, they'll be repaid. But I don't know what might happen in the meantime. Do you know what the responsibility is? We live in New England, if that matters, although my employer has locations all over the country. Well, this is very tricky. Um, if this were a more routine kind of situation where someone went, just disappeared from contact and wasn't heard from for weeks, months, there would be a point where most employers would assume the person had abandoned the job and wasn't returning. In the situation in the book, with the <laughs> I think doing that kind of work, I mean, it was never clear to me from the book how in the loop his employer was on exactly what he was embarking upon. But assuming they were in, in the loop a bit, my hope was always that they had some sense of what could be transpiring and wouldn't be yanking him off the payroll prematurely. Well, I've wondered that Murrays. too about like <laughs> other people in like similarly perilous situations. Like if you're, if you're an army ranger or something, I wonder what happens if you just, if they can't find you. <laughs> hmm. I think if you're deemed missing in action, there are, there are provisions in place, definitely. Yeah, I think there's a protocol that they would follow, and they'd really be searching for you and so forth. Um, with the father in the book, it's never clear. It almost I almost got the vibe that the parents were kind of pursuing this on their own, not, not necessarily coordinating it with the employer, but it wasn't clear to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always had a, like a vaguely governmental feel about it, but then the experiment seems so experimental. Who knows? Yeah. Huh. Well, and the mom was working on it from home, which also confused me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because particularly during that time, there weren't, well, maybe in the reality of the book, but it never really was revealed. There weren't computers or any kind of linked internet well they they did mention when they went into the big room where the mm. the man with the red eyes was sitting at the end of it that she referred to like the the immense computing machines that her oh, father yeah. sometimes yeah. worked with so it had to be yeah. 
really early on. But she didn't have it at home, though. Oh, no. Yeah. So she was doing some kind of field work or, like, paperwork or something to do with it at home. <laughs> In some of the later books, they talk about thought experiments. Okay. But also they talk about chemicals and Bunsen burners, so I have okay. no idea. <laughs> I never read past the first two. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah, I need to, I need to fix that, but... So you've recently reread the book, I'm guessing, Allison. Yes, so do, do any managerial situations stand out to you? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good question. I think that, um, is it Mrs. Who's it or Mrs. What's it? It's Mrs. Who's it, right? Uh, Mrs. Who and Mrs. What's it and Mrs. Which. So I would say that they have a very laissez-faire management style, um, like very hands-off, maybe to everyone's detriment. Um, that's the only one that I was thinking about in preparation for this call that you, your fantastic letters didn't touch on. <laughs> I thought about that too, but I couldn't figure out what to ask because I feel like the issues that they would have would be like interpersonal rather than, well, I guess Mrs. Witch was sort of in charge. But you're right, it didn't seem like anybody was managing them at all. Well, Mrs. Who was a kind of like a steely, stealer person. Like she stole, stole those things. Sheets. She stole a lot of things. <laughs> and so, you know, I wonder about having her on the team. Like, you know, she's taking, she taking credit. She's taking children. Well, she's taking <laughs> children, but she's take credit for other people's work. Yeah. Like, you know, there's always one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Meg was sort of swept off on this semi-business trip with no warning, no consent given, and then just like very much thrown to the wolves with no guidance. Mm -hmm. It would be a liability issue for almost anybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would. <laughs> Aside from the fact that she's underage. Certainly. <laughs> what about the management of the planet? Camazons? Yes. Oh, I, was, well, I can I mean... never, I've always seen it and I've never said it, so I was afraid to say it. <laughs> Well, I think it's your classic, really toxic tyrant manager who's overly rigid and controlling, robs people of any kind of agency or autonomy, taken to an extreme. Mm -hmm. What What do you think that Mr. Murray should should do from a, like an employee standpoint? I think he should get hardship pay. <laughs> um, I mean, I think during he didn't really there wasn't much he could do. Mm -hmm. Um, he was, I mean, it's sort of like being held prisoner. So I don't think there was anything really he could do there. But afterward, I think he has a, certainly has a case for unionizing with his coworkers to have safer working conditions. Uh, one, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that he unionize, but he certainly has, <laughs> he certainly has standing and just cause to, to organize with his coworkers mm -hmm. in whatever form that takes, mm -hmm. uh, to push for, safer working conditions. Maybe they do want to put some protocols in place for the sort of thing we were talking about earlier. What happens if you're engaged in this kind of work and you suddenly go completely AWOL for a few months? What what procedures do they want to have in place if it happens in the future? Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'd keep that job. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty scary. Yeah. But he does keep it, right? He does, actually. Uh, in the later books, he's still doing the same work like forever. Although you have to wonder if the employer is the same. Yeah. I think it, it's, it's a personal passion. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we learn. Um, if he's continue, you know, he continues to do that work despite the peril that he puts himself and his family in. 
Well, what gets to me is that it's strongly implied that Charles Wallace starts working for him, and later on they refer to Charles Wallace being away, and no one has seen him in a long time. And then she didn't Charles Wallace. I know, and they didn't write more books about that before she passed away, and so nobody knows what happened to him. Oh, I mean, maybe in the books they know what happened to him, but nobody, no readers know what happened to him. Oh man. Charles Wallace is lost. If I could ask her one question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have a book coming out in May? I do. Um, my book is Ask a Manager, How to Navigate Clueless Colleagues, Lunch-Stealing Bosses, and the Rest of Your Life at Work. It is being published by Valentine Books on May 1st, and it's about the difficult conversations that you might need to have at work during your career and how to approach them, focusing in particular on the awkward and kind of cringy conversations that people dread the most. So things like what to say if you drank too much at the office holiday party, or if you lost your cool and you snapped at a coworker, the sorts of conversations that you might agonize over and maybe even be tempted to not have at all because you're not sure what to say. That would be me. I would totally avoid people. And then like three months later, be like, it never happened. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, for better or for worse, I go face first into fixing a situation. So I don't um, like confrontation. I can't do it. Oh, I I figure it's not going to hurt worse than it does. Like, it's not going to be worse than it is usually. I mean, the the percentage wise, I feel like an apology, generally speaking, someone's going to accept it and you can work it out. There's maybe 10% that it could go horribly wrong. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you, like, theoretically, but I swear (laughs) I'm, I am that T-Rex from Toy Story who was like, I don't like confrontation. (laughs) I hear Wallace Shawn every time I'm debating apologizing <laughs> to somebody. <laughs> it's awful. Just think- to say your book would be very useful for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have a lot of company in that boat. Um, and I think, too, sometimes when people are picturing having the conversation, they picture it being this really difficult, unpleasant, awkward thing. And one thing that I hope the book will achieve is because I give specific language to use, and if they say this, then you say that. I'm hoping it will help people envision the conversation a little bit differently that, oh, it doesn't have to be unbearably awkward or unpleasant. It can just be kind of matter of fact and straightforward. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I really enjoy about your blog in general. Actually, it's, it's nice to be like, you see these, these situations play out, like written out on the blog and you're like, oh, it's not, it's not that bad. And somehow in my head, it always is that bad until you really think about the wording that you give. And you're like, no, that really wouldn't be that bad. Good. That's what I'm going for. (laughs) That's what I hope the book does. Well, can you think of anything in this book that any of your advice that you would give to Meg Murray? I don't know if this is the advice exactly, but one thing that I really like about A Wrinkle in Time is is how much she comes to realize that no one is going to save her that, you know, for the first half of the book, she's thinking that once she finds her father, he'll take over and it'll all be okay. And then she has to grapple with the fact that he isn't saving her. He can't save her. There's still a lot that she has to do. And I think maybe that's advice for everyone else, actually not, (laughs) not for (laughs) me, but I think there's something really universal in that, that, A lot of times people wait for, you know, if I can just talk to my boss's boss, they'll make the situation okay. Um, Or if I could just find, if I talk to HR, or if I can just find the right wording for this. And 
sometimes no one comes in to save you and you just have to figure out how to navigate it yourself. I think that's excellent advice um, for her and for all of us. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading it, actually. Um, and also, I, I just started listening to your podcast. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, so I've kind of played around with the idea of doing a podcast for years and never really had the time. And finally this year was able to sit down and make it happen. And it's basically the Ask a Manager website, but in podcast form. And because of the medium, I'm able to have letter writers actually come on the show and talk to me about their letter. So I'm able to ask clarifying questions and we're able to have back and forth. And then I'm able to say, well, does this advice work for you or, or does it not? And we need to refine it. So it's pretty cool in that it's much more interactive than the website is. And I'm, you know, people are able to say, well, I don't think I would really do that in real life because of this. And then we can come up with a different plan. So I, it's really fulfilling from, from my end of it for that reason. And I hope it's interesting for people listening to hear it all play out in real time. Sometimes there are all of these details that come out in the follow-up that, <laughs> that maybe are a bigger problem than whatever question they asked initially um, that reveal, you like you sort of turn over the rock and you discover there's all of this other weird stuff going there's on. Spiders and worms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, sometimes someone will write in with one very specific question about a semi-difficult boss, but then in the update, they reveal there's much more toxicity in their office. That's a really common thing to have happen, actually. And I think it's because when you're in a really toxic, dysfunctional workplace and you've been there for a while, it kind of becomes your normal. And it can be hard to step back and see, this is all crazy. And so you write in with this one question that is like just the tip of the iceberg and not really the big problem facing you. I think my favorite one of those was the woman who wrote in and asked if her team was being too clicky. Do you remember that one? Yes, I do. She was a manager of a team and she had been accused by, I think, some level of management above her or HR of having of having created too, an ex too exclusive of an environment. And she was pretty annoyed by it, pretty defensive. But she sent in a few updates and as the story unfolded, it, she had actually created a really terrible work environment. It was amazing. Wow. <laughs> um, there was one woman on her team who was a little bit older than everyone else, and she was just really excluded. And they were all going out every day and having these working lunches. Or not, I don't even think working lunches, just lunches with alcohol. Um, they weren't inviting her, and they were kind of looking down on her because she wasn't going. And there was I'm not remembering all the details. There were, there were, I'm not naming any of the worst details, but there were bad details. They and were like mocking her on Twitter or yeah, something. They were mocking oh her my on God. Uh, it was bad. And she, when she first wrote in, I think in her, her first letter and her first update, she was very defensive and didn't think she'd done anything wrong. But there were a couple updates after that where she had gone to therapy and she had really oh on it and she, she had lost her job as a result of this. And in the beginning, she was really self-righteous that that shouldn't have happened. But by the end of this series of letters, she really felt terrible and, and understood that she shouldn't have been managing that way and, and maybe shouldn't be managing in the future. Oh, goodness. It was epic. <laughs> that sounds up. I'm going to have to find that one. I did not read that one yet. So because I was curious about that, about people who think that someone else is the problem. And then, you know, how, how you're able to deal with the, the eventuality and the kind of coming out that no, you're the problem. <laughs> 
Like yeah, you know. you know, sometimes people write in and they really mess something up. They I mean, they just done, but they get it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I'm sympathetic. We all do stupid things at times, and and then try to make it better. And there's if someone is writing in from that perspective, there's no need to beat them over the head with the fact that they got it wrong. They get it. We just need to figure out what they need to do to move forward from here. But with that kind of letter writer, at least in the, her early letters, where you have someone who really doesn't think they've done anything wrong, and that's rare, actually, for my letter writers, but it happens, I'd say, a few times a year. Um, with them, I try to be just really straightforward and lay out like sort of reflect back to them what they're actually saying. She was unusual in that she really took a beating from the internet about her initial letter, but she came back several times to, to continue talking. And that's unusual for people to do when they're getting savaged like that. Mm-hmm. It is nice that, that things turned around at the end. Yeah. And I mean that as much criticism as she rightly took, that speaks well of her. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking about children's books in general with us. It was great. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. And again, we were here with Allison of Ask a Manager at askamanager.org. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.